and welcome to Life in the Rabbit Hole, the Caneo Parent Pod. I'm Lori Carice, a fellow parent living in the Caneo Valley and your host. Thank you for tuning in. For parent pod tales, community matters, and social topics, which include plenty of wellness content. Parenting is not a one-size-fits-all approach. It's as difficult as much as it's rewarding, and we've all heard from the beginning of this journey, it takes a village. So join us as we connect through life in the rabbit hole. For everyone, everywhere. This episode is sponsored by Camp Keystone. Welcome back, summer campers. Registration is open for Camp Keystone's amazing summer programming experiences for kids ages 3 to 15. Visit CampKeystone.com for June 14th through August 13th enrollment. Camp Keystone is COVID-19 experience. All guidelines are being met and they're ready to have fun. Welcome back to our listeners and thank you for tuning in to Reset for Women Unplugged. We're kicking off our next series, Women Who Rise and Inspire, with Kristen Donnelly. Kristen is an empathy educator, TEDx speaker, YouTube and podcast host, and business owner. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So I am going to mute my mic and step away from our virtual stage so that you have the spotlight in leading an audio presentation to our listeners as a woman who hopes to inspire. Take it away, Kristen. I was with a group of friends the other night, one of those magical early summer evenings that stretched to allow all the stories that we had to share. And there was a newcomer to the group. As is common when I meet new people, she was puzzled by my job and asked me to explain. I gave the canned answer that I'm an empathy educator who spends my life helping people hold the pain and joy of others in order to expand their worldview and live more empathetically. And then she asked my favorite follow-up question. Why? Over the course of the next several minutes, I'm going to answer that question for you as well. It's my hope that in doing so, you'll find at least a piece of my journey that inspires you or helps you see the world differently and that you can move through the world at a different pace or from a different perspective as you find a new way to be human. When I was seven years old, my parents bought a rundown dye manufacturing company in a severely under-resourced neighborhood in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We were living in Baltimore, Maryland at the time, and so it required a move, which of course was the most traumatic thing that could have ever happened to my seven-year-old self. I had no idea that the course of our lives really were going to change. And that not only was I moving locations, but our family was entering a new phase of purpose. The company is, as I said, in a very under-resourced area. It's still there. It's 30 years old and my brother and I own it now. But the mission all along has been to provide excellent products and hire people that may have not quite been given a chance somewhere else. The phrase we kind of say is that we like to hire folks who either made poor decisions or had poor decisions made for them for at least a portion of our workforce. We promise that if you can show up sober every day and on time, we'll teach you everything else you need to know to be on the labor area, for instance. We make lots of very important products, stains that diagnose cancer or glaucoma, epoxies to fix the inside of ships, 
while submarines are underwater. But all along, we have held people and profit in tension. There's not really any purpose, my parents believed, in owning a business or running a company if you treated people like cogs in a machine. Everything had to be centered on the people. Now, we had to make a profit because you have to keep the lights on. And the way I joke now, we've all become accustomed to eating. But fundamentally, the purpose was people. Over the years, our family has developed a mission statement, and it's the thing that we stand by the strongest. Not only the four of us in our nuclear family, but people who have kind of signed on to our familial vision, people who work for us or who work alongside of us. And it's pretty simple. It's to impact lives and create wealth. And wealth needs to be more than just money. It has to be spiritual and economical for sure, but also emotional and familial and psychological. It has to mean the wealth of a whole person. So everything we do as families and as individuals are driven by the idea of impacting lives and creating wealth. I've been given this perspective since, again, I was seven. In middle school, my parents took it a step further, like put some actual feet to that fire. And they started doing what they called the Thanksgiving tour of thanks, where we'd wake up really, really early on Thanksgiving morning, and they would drive us around an area that was demographically different than where we grew up, somewhere within driving distance of the suburbs of Philadelphia that we lived in. And the questions would be the same every year. On the way down, it's what are you thankful for in your life? While you're there, it's what would you be thankful for if you lived here? And on the way home, it was what would you be thankful for now that you've seen what you've seen? And the stories were honest. This is an area where it's more likely that boys will go to prison, then they will graduate high school. This is an area where getting after school care is very hard. This is an area where the numbers tell us X, Y, Z. We usually knew somebody who lived in one of the neighborhoods, but not always. Sometimes it was just that my parents picked a neighborhood and we learned. And of course, this was to help counteract very fundamentally some of the materialism that comes with being a suburban American child, especially in the 90s. There wasn't really any kind of level of internet of national social justice or awareness that there is now. But my parents were terrified that we were going to grow up and be essentially incredibly selfish and materialistic. And so they made sure that we weren't going to be the stereotypical American suburban kids, that we were always going to know that our lives were to be in service to greater things. I remember at 12 years old thinking, how would I feel different about my education if I was part of a family that didn't support it? After we heard the story of somebody that we knew who was like that. I was constantly asked and exposed to different stories and different worldviews other than my own. I would come home from school all precocious and say something that was an opinion, and I presented it as a fact. I'd come home from church the same way, and my parents would say, well, that is one way to look at it, and usually present me with another. Or even if they didn't know another, their whole ethos was to encourage curiosity and have us dive past what was on the surface to keep going. So as I moved through childhood, adolescence, and into early adulthood, though, I always felt a little bit itchy. I never fit in fully anywhere because a lot of ways, a lot of reasons of how my parents raised me and my younger brother as well. I knew that I was created to serve other people and that my calling had something to do with teaching and serving. 
But every time I thought I landed on what that would look like, working at parachurch organizations, serving peers on my college campus, just nothing ever felt really settled. When I was a junior in college, I spun a globe in a bookstore in Lexington, Kentucky, and the events after that sparked a decision to move to Northern Ireland completely sight unseen just after I finished university. And I spent a year teaching sex ed directly out of college. (laughs) It will go down as the most fun job I've ever had and the thing that changed my life the most significantly. How I thought the world work shifted completely. I was raised in a church, and at the time, I thought that I would be a professional in professional ministry as my paycheck and my identity and kind of everything else. But what that year in Northern Ireland taught me was that ministry was so much wider than I had ever considered it before. It encompassed so much more of life, and it solidified the lessons that my family had been teaching me, that unless we're feeding people or unless we're asking questions or offering dignity or providing employment, the words coming out of our mouths don't really matter. I was then got a generous scholarship to Baylor University to do a master's of divinity degree, which is a professional ministry degree and involves a lot of theology and uh, story, like study of Christian scriptures and, and a lot of other things. So I moved from Belfast to Waco, Texas in the summer of 2006. After a few weeks in Kenya and Rwanda in the summer of 2007, I added a master's of social work to that because I had to understand how to put feet to my faith in new and significant ways. The drumbeat up to my life at that point had been, okay, but how does this matter if we're not feeding people? What does this idea do if it doesn't make anyone's life better? I was always frustrated in the academy by conversations that went in circles and everybody left a meeting thinking something had been accomplished when nothing tangible had except some people got their egos scratched. In 2008, the spring, it was really rough. I ended up being collateral damage in a toxic power struggle in a congregation I was in at the time. And as is often the case with collateral damage, I was shattered. I was ready to walk away from my faith entirely I was ready to redefine who I was against and away from everything my family had taught me. They had said, serve people and be kind to people. And look, mom and dad, and I had just done that. And these people treated me like this. I was destroyed, very honestly, kind of in a way that like you only can be when the thing you thought was the center of your identity is just ripped away. And then I met a man who was a, who's become a trusted mentor, and he's actually since gone on to perform my marriage ceremony to my husband. He gave me a really wise piece of advice, and it boiled down to the idea that humans and institutions would always fail me. But the truth of who I was and the truth of who Christ was would not. The truth of my calling would not crumble. The truth of feeding the hungry, of clothing the naked, of teaching, of asking, of leading – It would not crumble as long as I kept the trust in the places that wouldn't crumble. So I focused my life on doing those things that would still exist if humans were themselves and they were hurtful and they were terrible to me. As I knit myself back together and my understanding of the world kind of in new ways, I learned a lot about community. I learned what it looked like to be family when you never shared blood. I learned what it felt like to have people in your corner when you couldn't breathe right. I learned how to discern who was worth my entire heart and who only got pieces of me. I also learned to pay attention to things around me, 
to ask questions as often as possible. And even when someone thinks they've given me an answer to ask more questions. My social work training taught me to listen proactively and to leverage my incredible privilege as a white, middle-class, educated woman for the power of others. I learned to seed the floor and make sure that the panels I was on and the conferences that I was running represented as much of humanity as possible in that moment. There was all these things that I had kind of known, all these reasons I had been itchy for most of my life, all of these kind of jagged edges that I didn't know how to fit together. Those final years in Waco gave me vocabulary for them. I finally integrated the faith that my parents had taught me and put feet to with the theological training and the social work education that I had been privileged to have. So I wrapped up my master's in 2011. And there's a long story as to why I made this next decision that I would love to tell anybody over a cup of coffee sometime. But I ended up back in Northern Ireland and I did a PhD in sociology. Within about three weeks, I met the woman who's now my business partner And within about six weeks of moving there, I met the man who would become my husband. But the most significant emotional gift that those five years in Northern Ireland gave me was the lesson that understanding somebody is not condoning their actions. Northern Ireland is an incredibly statistically and emotionally divided society. And the likelihood that you spend time with somebody every day who you'd fundamentally disagree with on something very, very significant as an expat is really, really high. As a national is much lower. But I moved between a whole lot of communities a lot out of job and desperation and curiosity And I would spend my morning with somebody who would absolutely abhor the person I spent my evening with. And I learned how to hold a whole lot of things as true at once. I am grateful for the education I got formally through my university. I am very proud of that doctorate and the book that I wrote that no one will ever want to read because that's what PhD theses are. Very specific and well-researched books that no one else would ever want to read. But the thing that I am the most proud of is the way that I allowed my brain and soul to be shaped by that place. In 2013, my husband, his name is John, we were engaged and trying to figure out where we were going to live after my student visa wore out. Were we going to stay in the UK and or were we going to move to America? What was going on at this point? My brother had decided that college wasn't for him. And he had gone back to work in the family business, which is not something either one of us was ever going to do. But he was doing operations manager and he was working with a lot of the folks that I mentioned earlier who had had poor choices made for them or made them themselves. Folks who were in recovery, folks who were just out of the penal system, folks who didn't have the best education. And he said to me, you know what I think we could really do? Just, you know, go with me here. What if you moved home after you finished and you just you joined me and you did HR, but you did it as social work? Like, how would you feel that would happen? And I looked at my then fiance and he was like, that sounds like a great idea. And so we started making that happen. We, I, you know, started researching a whole lot of HR things, started talking to my brother a lot. And by the time I emigrated home in 2015, we had a plan ready to put in place. I was going to work part-time at the factory, build this kind of new HR thing. I would then eventually hire somebody else all the time. I would be doing adjunct professorship because I thought I was supposed to be a professor. I loved it. I loved teaching. This was the newest version of my calling that I was sure was mine. 
And then in the spring of 2016, we were on a family vacation and our father went into ventricular tachycardia while he was on a treadmill on a cruise ship and he was clinically dead for 15 minutes. And as I watched him drive away in the ambulance in Cozumel, Mexico, and I watched the cruise ship leave without us and I was standing on the dock and I had our board of directors in one on one phone in one ear and my aunt on the phone in the other ear. I knew fundamentally at that moment that I had to be part of taking over the company, that it didn't matter what I thought my calling was. My calling now was to come back to my family. So from 2016 to New Year's Eve of 2020, we did a slow and intentional transition process. My brother went from operations manager and I went from HR and director of research to CEO and COO. And then we added co-owners most recently. We started dreaming of new ways to do business and started to figure out. And all along, we looked back at that mission statement and we said, okay, impact lives and create wealth. And my brother and I started talking about how I could do that best. So yeah, I could do the COO thing because I'd have to figure it out because that's what family does when life throws you a whole lot of curveballs. But when my brother asked me to pay attention to what my calling was and to look at how I had been shaped and formed, we started to define what it could look like for me to take my gifts and enact our mission statement, our family mission statement, in a teaching and consulting platform that we now call Abbey Research. I hired my best friend, Aaron, who I met really quickly into Belfast, my time in Belfast, who was also an American. And we started to form this company slowly while my brother and I were taking over the parent umbrella. And we were kind of figuring out that what that was going to look like. And then, of course, you may have heard of it. There was this thing called COVID, and it kind of threw us all for loops. And in 2020, not only with COVID, but with the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, we started paying attention to the world in different ways. Enough of the transition had happened that my brother and I could kind of take a deep breath and look around and go, okay. What needs to stay the way it was and what needs to change? What questions do we have to ask? What team members do we have to have in place? What causes do we want to be known for? How do we want to live our mission? And Aaron and I were asking the same question with Abby Research, and the three of us kind of got together and started crafting new things. We started dreaming of new ways to do business, because if you want to do new things, you have to learn new things and be new things. We all decided it was time for me to pursue my lifelong dream of being, or as long as I can remember dream, I should say, of being a TEDx speaker. I signed up for a two-day masterclass on a whim with a woman named Trisha Brooke, and that then led to a longer speaking academy, which then led to working with her one-on-one as a coach, to then landing my very first TEDx I ever officially applied for approximately one week after I applied. And that all brings us to now. As I record this in June of 2021, there's a few things that I know. I know that when people show you who they are, in the words of Dr. Maya Angelou, we need to believe them. I've learned that serving your audience is the best way to be a speaker and serving your employees is the best way to be a boss. I've learned that love is a verb. It's patient and it's kind And it's an activating entity when we let it be more than a Hallmark card. I know that the best way to be human is to love extravagantly, to do justly, to serve others, and to hope always. 
I know that everybody is more complicated than we give them credit for. And I am convinced that curiosity is a superpower. As I wrap up my time with you in this space of your life, wherever you are listening to this, my deepest, deepest hope for you is that you would know what it means to live in the power of the calling that you have been given. That even if it feels a little bit itchy and even if it doesn't quite make sense, that you would keep chasing the pieces that do until everything does. That you would learn the people that you can trust and the people that you can't. But more than anything, I hope that you continue to ask questions and that you would remember that you are enough and you are worthy and you are all the things that a lot of the pieces of our lives try very hard to tell us that we're not. I want to thank you for stepping in to the new version of yourself that drove you to listen to this and to be part of Reset for Women. Wherever you are in your reset, you are doing great. I promise. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Kristen. You are a woman who inspires and we are Reset Complete. Thank you so much for listening today. And please subscribe to our podcast so that you can be alerted each time we drop a new episode. For bonus content, be sure to join us as a member and receive Green Room Diaries, After the Final Cut, Confessions of a Caneo Valley Mom, as well as our exclusive wellness workshops. From one parent to another, we've got this. Just believe in yourself and remember we're our own worst critics. Tell yourself and another that they're doing a good job.